invite you to take your copy of Scripture this morning and turn to 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 6. And uh, we have been in a series in 1 Timothy for some time, and this morning uh, we plan to conclude the series. And so this is the last passage uh, that we're going to look at in 1 Timothy for our series. For, so 1 Timothy chapter 6, and I will begin reading for us in verse 17. If you're using one of the Bibles that's provided for you uh, in the chair where you're seated or if you're in the balcony, one of the pews upstairs, you'll find our passage on page 994, 994. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and beginning in verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Amen. As I mentioned earlier, we have been in a series in 1 Timothy. And in the letter of 1 Timothy, Paul, the apostle, is writing to a young pastor named Timothy who is responsible for caring for the church in Ephesus. And Paul makes it very clear in this letter why he is writing Timothy. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, Paul says to Timothy, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And so Paul is writing this letter to Timothy because he wants Timothy to know how the church is to be structured, how it is to function, how individuals within the church are to relate to one another so that the church would bring glory to God. And one of Paul's main concerns as he thinks about the church and how the church is to bring glory to God is that the church would be a pillar and a buttress of truth. And so this means that the church must discern and know what is true. The church must embrace truth. The church must teach truth. The church also must have the ability to discern what is false and reject that which is not true. And so if you've been here for our series, you know that one of the great concerns Paul has in this letter is he writes to Timothy is that there are some in the church in Ephesus who have rejected the truth. They are promoting that which is false, and it's causing problems within the church. In fact, throughout this letter, Paul speaks to Timothy and charges him to identify and oppose this false teaching in the church. Paul speaks about the false teachers in chapter 1 of this letter. He speaks about the false teachers again in chapter 4, and then he returns to this theme again in chapter 6, the last chapter of the letter. And so what are these false teachers teaching? What is it that is, that is 
false that is being promoted in the church in Ephesus. Well, we learn from this letter that the false teachers are particularly fascinated with speculative readings of the Old Testament, in particular speculative readings of the genealogies of the Old Testament. And so they are ignoring or distorting the clear original meaning of the Scriptures, and as a result of these speculative readings of the Scriptures, they are then devising strange myths and coming up with weird ideas about food and marriage and sex. And as they teach these things in the church, it's causing division within the body of Christ. Now, as Paul addresses these false teachers in chapter 6, he is especially concerned, and we saw this a couple of weeks ago, he is especially concerned about how these false teachers relate to money and how they relate to the truth. So notice here, if you go back a little a bit earlier in the chapter, in verse 5, Paul speaks about their relationship to money. And he says that these false teachers in chapter 5, verse 6, they imagine that godliness is a means of gain. So they are using religion as a means to accumulate personal wealth. He goes on speaking in the context of these false teachers in chapter 6, verse 10, to say, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So Paul is concerned about how these false teachers perceive money, how they relate to money. He's also concerned about how they relate to the truth. So notice in chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, where again he's speaking in the context of addressing this false doctrine in the church. He says, In verse 3, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. And then he goes on in verse 5 to say that these false teachers are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. And so here's the danger. These false teachers are wrongly relating to money They are wrongly relating to the truth, and the danger is that these false teachers would start to influence members in the church in such a way that the members of the church would begin to imbibe the theology and the attitude that the false teachers have towards money, and they would begin to relate to money in the same way as the false teachers. Another danger is that the leaders of the church in Ephesus, even a leader like Timothy, would begin to be influenced by the false teachers in such a way that their teaching would begin to reflect the errors and the distortions of the false teachers. And so as Paul now comes to the conclusion of this letter, and he is so concerned about the false teaching that is taking place in Ephesus, he addresses those in the congregation who are wealthy gives them instructions about how they should perceive wealth and relate to wealth. And he gives instructions to Timothy about how he should relate to the truth. And this is a part of Paul's larger strategy to protect the church from error and to ensure that the church is in fact a pillar and buttress of truth. Because it seems that in Paul's mind, he believes that one of the ways that God protects his church from error and one of the ways he establishes his church in truth is through generous members 
and faithful pastors. Through generous members and faithful pastors. And this is what I want to help us see this morning as we look at our text. That one of the ways that God protects His church from false teachers like the ones that were here in Ephesus is through raising up within His body, raising up within His church, within His people, generous members and faithful pastors. So that's our outline this morning, just two points. The first, generous members. Look there in verses 17 through 19, and Paul addresses this matter of generous members. Verse 17, he writes, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So Paul here in our text is addressing those who are rich. He says in verse 17, as for the rich in this present age. Now, some of us, and perhaps most of us here this morning, when we hear Paul say, as for the rich in the present age, we tune out. We say, well, of course he's not talking about me. I'm not rich. Maybe some of you had that response this morning. And the reason why some of us might be tempted to tune out and say, well, Paul doesn't have anything to say to me in this section is because we tend to determine whether or not we are rich by comparing ourselves to other people that we know. So, for example, if we have a home that has two bedrooms, then we think, well, I know someone that has a home with three bedrooms, or four bedrooms, or six bedrooms, or eight bedrooms. They're rich. Obviously, I'm not. Or if we drive an old pickup truck that's broken down and you know, uh, has a number of problems with it, maybe it was given to us, then we think, well, of course I'm not rich because I know someone that has a BMW or a Jaguar. Or if we own a home with six bedrooms or eight bedrooms and we have a Jaguar and a BMW, then we think, well, I know that guy at work. He has three homes and he has eight luxury cars. Of course, I'm not rich. He's rich. And because we all have a tendency to kind of do that, I think it would benefit all of us to take a, a larger scope of the comparisons that we are tempted to make. Consider some of the data. This comes from a book written by Randy Alcorn entitled Money, Possessions, and Eternity. It was published in 2003, so the data is a little bit dated, but I believe current data would resemble much of what's stated here. He writes, quote, If you made $1,500 last year, that's more than 80% of the people on earth. I did not read that wrong. I did not miss a zero and make a mistake. If you made only $1,500 last year, that's more than 80% of the people on earth. 
Statistically, if you have sufficient food, decent clothes, live in a house or apartment, and have a reasonably reliable means of transportation, you are among 15, the top 15% of the world's wealthy. If you have any money saved, a hobby that requires some equipment or supplies, a variety of clothes in your closet, two cars in any condition at all, and live in your own home, you are in the top 5% of the world's wealthy, end of quote. And so what Paul says here in these verses in 17 to 21 regarding the rich is evidently applicable to the vast majority of people who are present here this morning. Every single one of us. And of course, there are some among us who are especially blessed, and even in comparison to affluent American culture and society are especially blessed, and so these words may have a special relevance and applicability to you. But make no mistake, at some level, these words are applicable to all of us. And so what does Paul have to say to those who are wealthy in this present age? Well, I like how John Stott characterizes Paul's admonition to the rich here in these verses. He characterizes it as, Paul's admonition to the rich, he characterizes it as Paul speaking of the dangers of being rich and Paul speaking of the duties of being rich. So in verse 17, Paul begins by speaking of the dangers of being rich. And the first danger there you see in verse 17 is the danger of pride. He says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. And so this is one of the great dangers of wealth. This is one of the great dangers of riches is to be haughty, to be prideful, to have the attitude, I earned it and I deserve it. It reminds us, actually, of the example of Nebuchadnezzar in the Old Testament in Daniel chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar was the great king of the Babylonian Empire, and we're told that one day he was walking on the roof of his palace, and he was looking out over his great empire and all that he owned. And in Daniel chapter 4, as Nebuchadnezzar looks out over his empire, he says, Is this not great Babylon, which I built? By my mighty power, as a royal residence, and for the glory of my majesty. And do you know what happened? The Lord struck Nebuchadnezzar with madness. And Nebuchadnezzar roamed in the fields like a wild animal for a period of time until God restored his sanity to him. The Lord struck him for his pride, for his haughtiness. And no doubt it is true that oftentimes wealth is the reward of ingenuity and hard work, but we also must recognize that the opportunity to work, the ability to work, the skills needed to work, the rewards that come from work are all a gift from God. And without God, the opportunities and rewards of work would be impossible. And so we must remember the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, 
Why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Any wealth that we possess in this world is a gift from God. And so one of the dangers of wealth is to be prideful, to be haughty, to think we earned it, we deserve it. Another danger, though, of wealth is misplaced hope. Look at what Paul goes on to say in verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So Paul is recognizing here the futility of placing our hope on, in the uncertainty of riches. Actually, the author of Proverbs puts it this way in Proverbs chapter 23, verses 4 and 5. The author of Proverbs says, Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings and flies like an eagle toward heaven. So there the author of Proverbs as well is speaking about the uncertainty of riches. It can be here one moment and gone the next. I remember several years ago I was watching a video, and in this video there's a, it's a financial advisor that's pretty well known. He's made a lot of money, especially in real estate, and he's written books about it, and he has a YouTube channel and so forth. Well, in this video he gathers together some of his uh, sales reps and agents into a room, and he's got a whiteboard, and he's laying some different things out for them. And, and then he, he tells them, you know, and this was kind of the main thing that he was trying to communicate, you know, years ago, if you wanted to be financially secure, if you wanted to be financially independent, a million dollars was enough money. But nowadays, what we've got to understand is that a million dollars is not enough money. If you really want to be financially secure, if you really want to be financially independent, you need to have $10 million. And here's the reason why. And he goes through all the things that could happen and all the disasters that could come upon you. And then he lands on lawsuits. And that was kind of the main point he was making. You could get sued. Somebody could bring a charge against you and you have to go to court and maybe you lose the lawsuit. And then you'd have to pay all the attorney fees and so forth. You'd lose everything. And so if you want to be financially secure today, you need to have at least $10 million. And then he makes his pitch to them. So you've got to get out there. You've got to make calls and work and work and work and sell and sell and sell. So you can make your $10 million. And it's just a reminder to us that if we set our hope on the uncertainty of riches, it will distort the way we relate to money. Because instead of having open hands and, and being eager to share and be generous with others, we, will, we know instinctively how easily we can lose it. We know, how it's, we know instinctively how uncertain it is, how it can be here one day and gone the next. And so what do we do? We close our hands and we become stingy and we hoard and we say we got to get more and more and more and more and more, whether it's 1 million or 10 million or 20 million. Because you know the dirty secret? The people who have the most money in the world, billionaires, are oftentimes the most fearful of losing it. Because they know how quickly it could go. And so what does Paul say is the solution? Paul says that's no way to live. Rather, the solution is to shift our hope from the uncertainty of riches 
to the certainty of God's good provision. Do you see that in the text? He says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes, here it is, on the uncertainty and riches, here it is, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So you know, the first six months of this year as a church, we're focusing on the theme of the glory of God. And there it is. In 1 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul is addressing Timothy regarding wealth and riches. And he points Timothy where? To God. He says, you want to understand how to relate to money and riches, right? You need to know who God is. And who is the God of the Bible? The God of the Bible is the God who provides for the needs of His people. And not only does He provide for our needs, He provides for our enjoyment. So so it's not wrong to receive the things that God has given us and to enjoy them. We should enjoy them to the glory of God. But we should not set our hopes on them in such a way that we would hoard them and be stingy with them. But rather we should set our hopes on God who has given us these things so that we can give a healthy portion of them away for the good of others. So our hope's not on the things, but rather our hope is on the God who gave us these things so that then we have the freedom to be generous and good to others. You know, this is actually the way that the Apostle Paul reasons with the church in Corinth as well. When, when Paul writes the church in Corinth, he's in a stage of his ministry where he is attempting to collect an offering for the church in Jerusalem because the church in Jerusalem is suffering under a famine. And so he's speaking to all the various Gentile churches that are spread throughout the Roman Empire, and he's encouraging them to give an offering, and he's going to collect that offering and take it to the church in Jerusalem. But the church in Corinth has kind of lost their zeal for the offering. They've kind of waned in their interest in giving to the church in Jerusalem. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, Paul is seeking to motivate them to be generous, to give to the church in Jerusalem. And one of the ways he does it is he points them to who God is. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8, one of my favorite verses in all the Bible, Paul says to the church in Corinth, and God is able to make all sufficiency abound to you, so that having all things, having all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. I didn't say that exactly right, but that's essentially what it says. Let me read it directly. <laughs> It'll be even better. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Do you see what Paul is saying? You don't have to worry about anything. You can be generous and you can give because God will provide for you. So Paul addresses the dangers of being rich. One is to be prideful or haughty, the other is to set our hope on the uncertainty of riches. Notice in verses 18 and 19, though, Paul addresses the duties of being rich or the responsibilities of being rich. Now, again, consider this in context because back in chapter 6, verse 5, we see that Paul rebukes the false teachers there because they are using religion to get rich. And in verses 7 and 8 of this chapter, Paul speaks of the fact that we bring nothing into this world and we can take nothing with us out of this world, so therefore we should be content with food 
and with clothing. And so Paul is essentially saying, listen, if, if that's all the Lord provides for us is our bare necessities, then we should be content with that. But the fact remains that some of the members in the church in Ephesus are wealthy. And so where does this leave them? What are they to do? Should they renounce their wealth and take a vow of poverty? Should they repent of being privileged and assume that any acquiring of wealth is necessarily unjust and evil? Well, that's not what Paul says. Instead, Paul says they are, you see it there in the text, they are to do good, they are to be rich in good works, and they are to be generous and ready to share. So, they are to do good. This is kind of at the most basic level. And if we were to think just very practically, what does it mean with the finances, with the wealth, with the resources that the Lord has blessed me with, what does it mean for me to do good? Let me, let me suggest that at the most basic level, it would mean that you commit, wherever God calls you to be, in terms of a member of a local church, that you would commit to giving 10% of your income to invest in that ministry, in that gospel ministry for the glory of God. Now, you might say, well, why 10%? Well, 10% is a standard that is established in the Old Testament where the people of God were told to give 10% of what they had, a tithe, to the work of the Lord. And I think that still transfers as a basic baseline or standard for New Testament giving today. Now, some may give more than that, especially if the Lord has particularly blessed you. You may choose to give 12% or 15% or 20% or whatever it might be. But that's baseline. If we are to honor God with our finances, I think that's a good place to start is to commit to giving at least 10% of what the Lord has given us to the church where God has called us to be. And then from there, we should look for other opportunities as the Lord blesses us to help others and to be a blessing to others and to promote good gospel work. That could mean giving to a ministry that is invested in caring for orphaned and impoverished children. It could mean supporting a church plant here in the United States. It could mean giving to a just cause like the ending of abortion in our generation. It could be giving to a missionary family who is committed to taking the gospel to the nations. But we should start, we should begin by giving to our own local church and then looking for opportunities outside of that to give and to be generous, to support good works, to bless others, and to advance kingdom work. Notice what Paul goes on to say here. For those who are especially blessed, for those who we might categorize as rich, they should not only be known for being rich in income and assets and possessions, but they also should be known for being rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Because the reality is, in some ways, the more someone has been blessed with wealth, the more wealth one has, the more opportunities they have to do good. 
You know, there are some people who they may give 10%, commit 10% to their local church and give faithfully to do so. And honestly, at the end of the day, after they give and then they pay their basic bills, it's tight. They hardly have anything left. That is a wonderful gift and offering that the Lord delights in and takes pleasure in. And there are other people, and they give 10% of their income, And the reality is, they don't even know it's gone. There's just so much left over, they don't even miss it. They're not making any sacrifices. They're not missing out on anything because the Lord just blessed them with so much. And so what's left over, what, what Paul is saying here, with what's left over, we shouldn't look at it as just all of this now is for me to enjoy, but rather there is some here left for me to enjoy, but there is also the Lord has given me all of this so that I might use some of it to be a blessing to others. So that I'm not only known for being rich in wealth and income and assets and possessions, but I'm known for being rich in good works, ready to share and generous with all. Paul goes on to say that if we fulfill these duties and responsibilities related to the wealth that God has given us, then there is a reward. Look there in verse 19. He says, "...thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life." Warren Buffett is uh, one of the wealthiest people in the world. I know at one point he was the wealthiest person in the world, and it goes back and forth between several different people. But Warren Buffett made his billions of dollars by investing in the stock market. And Warren Buffett is known for reading company documents and financial reports six to eight hours a day. And then being very slow and deliberate in the companies in which he chooses to invest. So he may take months, he may take years after he studies all these different documents and financial reports and so forth from various companies before he chooses a company to invest in. And in doing this over the years, he's made some really good choices. And as a result, he's a billionaire. And Buffett is also known for saying that when you play his game, which I don't suggest you to do because it's actually very difficult to do successfully, he doesn't suggest other people do it either. When you play his game, you only have to make one or two right decisions in order to totally transform your financial future. So so you only got to pick one Coca-Cola, you know, like when they're just getting started. And dump a bunch of money in it, and then, right? So what is the reward for the Christian who honors God with their finances? We get the opportunity in this life to invest in the one sure investment that will reap certain and eternal rewards. Forever and ever and ever and ever and ever, and you can't lose it. That's the the reward that we get as Christians. And and the investment will be far worth far more than Coca-Cola stock or Apple stock or Bitcoin or Tesla or any of those all combined. For we will be investing 
in the eternal kingdom of God. The Lord Jesus says it this way, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And so we are given the opportunity to invest in God's eternal kingdom. Before we move on from this point, though, there's another benefit. Another benefit I want to point out. If we honor God with our finances, another benefit I believe that we we can discern here in the passage is that God uses our faithful generosity to protect us and to protect our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ from false teachers. Then you say, well, how does that work? Okay, just imagine this. Imagine you're at home and you turn your TV on and one of those really slick TV evangelist comes on, right? And he's saying to you, I command you in Jesus' name, you send me a seed of $777, and I promise you God's going to bless you tenfold, right? And in some ways, he's convincing. He's pretty slick. He's persuasive. He's compelling in his own weird way. And then you start thinking about some members in your church. Like that family you know who didn't have the resources to do it, but they chose to adopt a disabled child. And it did no favors to their 401k, but they... They raised the money and they made the sacrifices and they adopted that child. And you see how they love and care for that child. Or you think about the family in your church who has been blessed with a large home. And they use their home consistently to host community groups and Bible studies and discipleship and show hospitality. And sometimes it's even a landing place for people who are down and out or in transition And you think about that family in your church that had a really good paying job. And they decided to quit their job and essentially sell all their possessions and go on the other side of the world to be missionaries to take the gospel to people who have never heard. And as you think about the community of faith that you're in and the people that you know in church and how they relate to money, you realize that they look far more like Jesus than that slick con artist talking to you through the TV screen. And you realize that what you're experiencing at church in community with other brothers and sisters in Christ is far more authentic and real and biblical and distinctly like Jesus than what you see on the TV. And you reject the counterfeit and you embrace what is real. We need examples like that in the church, don't we? 
And oh, my friends, by God's grace, let's build a culture like that at Crawford Avenue Baptist Church. A culture that is known for being rich in good works and generous and ready to share because it will be a protection to our own souls and it will be a protection to other brothers and sisters in Christ and to our church, to counterfeits who use religion for their own personal gain. We should live in such a way and relate to money in such a way that those guys could never deceive us. We could see that from a mile away. So, God establishes His church in the truth and protects His church from false teachers through generous members and secondly, faithful pastors. And this point is a lot shorter than the first one, okay? Verse 20 and 21. Look there, verse 20 and 21. Paul says, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Now, what is the deposit that Paul is speaking of here in verse 20? Well, if you, you might remember this, back in chapter 6, verse 12, Paul refers to the faith. And I made the point there that Paul's reference to the faith fits with a series of expressions that are common in 1 Timothy. Uh, Paul speaks of the faith, he speaks of the truth, the teaching, the message, the doctrine, and the deposit. In all of these things, he's, in all of these expressions, he's referring to the same thing. He's referring to a, a body of content a message, the message of Jesus and the apostles, in particular the message of the gospel. And and we know that we're on track here because Paul contrasts the deposit with irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. So he's contrasting the true message, the deposit, with a false message, true knowledge with false knowledge. And the message, the deposit that he tells Timothy to guard here is, as I stated, the message of Jesus Christ, the gospel, the good news. Now, what is the gospel? Well, the gospel is the good news that God created us and He loves us. And out of His love, He has showered us with blessings and with goodness. But because of our sin, we have rebelled against Him. We have rejected His love and His goodness. We have distorted and perverted His good gifts. We have loved His good gifts more than we have loved Him. We have set our hopes on the uncertainty of those gifts rather than setting our hope on Him. And because of these sins and far more, we are worthy of His judgment and His wrath. But God, in His great love and mercy, sent His Son, the Lord Jesus, who lived a perfect life. And out of His great love for us, He let go of all that He possessed, even His own life. So that He might die on the cross and take the punishment for our sins and be raised from the dead. So that He would take upon Himself the curse that we deserve and He would give to us the life that He deserves. And the promise of the gospel is that if we believe and trust in the Lord Jesus, 
then God will shower us once again with all His grace and mercy and love. He will forgive us of our sins. He will give us His Spirit. He will welcome us into His family, and He will empower us to live lives for His glory. And that means He will empower us to live lives of generosity, joyful generosity for the sake of others and the glory of His name. This is the good news. This is the the message that Paul is telling Timothy here to guard. And I love that Paul refers to the message, the gospel here, as the deposit. Right? Why, why does he use that word? He could have said, Timothy guard the faith. Timothy guard the message. Timothy guard the teaching. That's, those are the types of words that he uses in other places. But here, instead, he chooses to use a word paratheke, which means a deposit, a trust, a treasure that is entrusted to another's care. And the reason why Paul, I believe, chooses to use that word here is because he's just, he's just wrapped up this extended exhortation to those who are rich, to those who have wealth in this present age. And what Paul is communicating here to Timothy is, listen, Timothy, no matter how many riches, no matter how many treasures you have in this life or the Christians in Ephesus have in this life, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ possesses a deposit, a treasure, a riches, a possession of riches that is far worth anything this world can offer. And it is the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so guard it. Guard it, protect it. You know, when I was, before I became a pastor for years, I worked off and on in retail. And in retail, one of the responsibilities of those who work the cash register is at the end of the night, you have to count the deposit. And the deposit represents the fruit of all the labor from that day, right? So it's very valuable. And depending on which Retailer I was working for, you know, we might make hundreds of dollars that day. We might make thousands of dollars that day. But there was a very careful process in place to count the deposit. You'd have one person count it, and you have to list, you know, how many ones you have, and fives, and tens, and twenties, and how many checks, and how many coins, and so on and so forth. Then the other person would count it, and they would check it and make sure that everything is right and, and just so. And then one person would have to sign off, and another person would have to sign off. And then to actually make the deposit, only the manager could do that. Only someone who has more authority and is trusted and so forth. And so they would make the deposit. But oftentimes when they took the deposit to the bank, someone else would have to go, maybe following behind in another car, so that they would have protection and also so that there would be accountability. Because the deposit was of such value to that company. And what Paul is saying here is, listen, the church has been entrusted with the most valuable possession, the most valuable treasure you could ever imagine. And if the church of the Lord Jesus Christ loses the deposit, loses the treasure, loses the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, then what do we have? And so many churches tragically have lost the treasure. Whether through ignorance or neglect, they've lost the treasure. And Paul says, Timothy, don't let that happen in the church in Ephesus. Guard it. Protect it. Make sure nothing is missing. For it's the most precious thing that any Christian in any church possesses. Guard the treasure entrusted to you. 
Finally, Paul concludes the letter with these words, grace be with you. It's a word of hope. As we reflect back on these, this letter and the six chapters that Paul has written to Timothy, we might wonder, well, how in the world is Timothy going to fulfill all these instructions? How is the church in Ephesus going to live up to being a pillar and buttress of truth? How will we, as a church here at Crawford Avenue, be the church of the living God that God has called us to be for the glory of God? We might be tempted to say, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, who is sufficient for these things? But Paul concludes his letter by reminding Timothy that the God who provides us with everything for our enjoyment will give us the grace we need, grace upon grace, to be all that He has called us to be. God will give us the grace to fulfill His purpose for our lives. Let's pray and ask that He would help us to do just that. Father, we thank You for Your Word And Lord, we recognize as a church that we have been so very blessed, each one of us individually and as a church as a whole. And Father, help us, Lord, to not feel an ungodly shame or guilt about that, but Lord, help us to feel a humble sense of gratitude and thankfulness and Help us to enjoy what You have given us for Your glory. But then, Lord, also help us to be a people who are generous, to see what You have given us as a stewardship. And, Lord, both in our individual lives and as a church, particularly here in this community, in Augusta and in Harrisburg, Lord, help us to steward what You have given us well, that we might be a blessing to others. Lord, we pray as well that we would be faithful to the greatest treasure that You have given us, namely the treasure of the gospel. Lord, we do pray that we would be faithful to guard it, to teach it, to defend it. We pray, Lord, that we would glory in it. We thank You for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And it's in His name we pray. Amen.